Luke 4 from verse 14. This comes uh, just after the uh, temptation of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, and then the temptation of Jesus. And then we pick up at Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. There's a Peanuts cartoon in which Charlie Brown walks up to his sister Sally out of the blue and shouts, believe in me. She ignores him and walks away. And then Snoopy comes by and Charlie shouts to him, believe in me. And Snoopy ignores him and walks away. And then uh, Lucy comes by, believe in me. She ignores him and walks away. And then the strip ends with Charlie Brown slumping to the ground, putting his head in in his hands and saying, I just can't get people to believe in me. For 2,000 years, Jesus Christ has said to men and women, believe in me, with the important difference that in this case it matters And in this case, they have in their millions. They've come to love and trust and serve and worship Him. They've built their lives on Him and in many cases have given their lives for Him. It wouldn't be going too far to say that for millions of people, the central affirmation of their faith and the defining assertion of their lives has been this statement from the Apostles' Creed that we're looking at this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ. That, that way of putting things, that language, believing in Christ, uh, goes back to Jesus Himself. Whoever believes in me has eternal life, John 3.36. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, John 6.35. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, John 11.26. Whoever believes in me will not stay in darkness, John 12.46. It's the repeated call of Jesus to all men and women, believe in me. It's the call of the early church when when the jailer in Philippi asks Paul and Silas in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? What's their response? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John in his first letter says this, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we're invited and urged and commanded to believe in Him, And so, it's one of those phrases that we use as Christians. It's become very familiar to us. We believe in Jesus Christ. Of course we do. That's that's what this is about. But what exactly do we mean by that? 
what I want us to think about this morning. We're not actually even looking so much this morning at the reasons why we should believe in Him. That's a topic for another day. All we're looking at today is simply this. What does it actually mean to say that we believe in Him? When we confess that as our faith, what are we saying? When we invite and encourage others to believe in Him, what are we asking them to do? Because people use that phrase in all kinds of different ways. I believe in capitalism or in socialism. I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in the Loch Ness Monster. I believe in human nature. I believe in God. I believe in love. I believe in you, Charlie Brown. So, in what sense, then, do we affirm together that we believe in Jesus Christ? Because according to that Bible, according to the Bible, that is no vague statement that can mean whatever you want it to mean. There's however many of us here, we all say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and we all just kind of mean whatever we mean by that. That's, that's not what it means. That's not what Christian faith is about. God's Word says that believing in Jesus means some very specific things. We're not just saying we have some vaguely positive feelings about Him, or that we like Him, or that we agree with His teachings, and the world would be a much better place if everybody would abide by His teachings. Faith in Jesus has specific content. It means to believe certain specific things and to believe in certain specific ways. And so, to sharpen this a bit, I want to focus in on uh, really just on one word in this confession. We'll look at other aspects of Jesus' identity next week, but here the creed says not just that we believe in Jesus, but that we believe in Jesus Christ. It's easy to miss the significance of that because very early in the history of the church, Jesus came to be referred to in the normal course of things as Jesus Christ, almost as if it was His first name and surname, you know, like He came just after Mr. and Mrs., or just before Mr. and Mrs. Christie in the, um, the Nazareth phone book. And that, that's, that, of course, is not what it means. Uh, Christ is not a name. It is a title. It's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means anointed one. A Christ you can use the word in that way, a Christ is someone who has been anointed, originally anointed with oil, had oil poured over them to signify that they're being set apart. Here we have all the people. We're going to take this person out, and we're going to anoint them to set them apart to a particular function, a particular role or task in the purposes of God. And to understand the significance of, of all of that and what it has to do with believing in Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, we need to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to do a bit of spade work in the Old Testament, which will reap dividends in a few minutes' time, because we cannot understand who Jesus the Christ is without the Old Testament. If you've ever wondered why it's there, that's why it's there. We cannot understand. You, you cannot pick up your Bible and start at Matthew chapter 1 and read through and have, a, and have a full and proper understanding. There's all sorts of things. You won't have a clue what's going on because there's all sorts of Old Testament background there. Uh, in Old Testament times, anointing was something that was done to three categories of people and only three. Uh, these three groups of people, the anointed ones, were appointed by God to act, in a sense, as channels through which God blessed His people. This is, this is God bringing blessing to His people. They were given an incredibly important place in terms of making possible a right relationship between God and His people. So, we're going to look at these three groups, the first of which is prophets. In 1 Kings 19, God commanded the prophet Elijah to, an, to anoint Elisha as his successor, as prophet. 
Um, Please do remember that prophecy in the Bible is not mainly about foretelling the future, although that does happen sometimes, but for the most part, prophecy means bringing a message from God. When you read that someone is a prophet, it just means that God has given that person a message and commanded them to deliver that message to the people. And because that's what prophecy was, it was incredibly important to God's people in the Old Testament. Because because here's the thing, unless God chooses to come and speak to us, we cannot know Him. We need Him, but no amount of, of mere human speculation will help us to know Him. The only way it can happen is if God chooses to reveal Himself to us, which is why prophecy was unspeakably precious. This was God communicating with His people, making Himself known. Hebrews begins, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times and in various ways. And that divine speaking was essential to a living relationship with Him. Um, Today, as we sit with a a completed Bible before us, whether it's on paper or on a tablet or on a phone, but but whatever, you know, you you have easy and instant access to a Bible it is hard to grasp just what it must have meant to God's people to have in their midst someone who had the authority to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, here is what God has to say to you. But God ensured that from His people, some were anointed to that task, that through them He might speak and so reveal His will and His ways to His people. Prophecy was a wonderful gift And yet always, if you read your way through the Old Testament, always there was something provisional about it, something limited, something incomplete about it. You get the clearest signal of that in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, God tells the Jewish people that He will raise up for them another prophet like Moses, the greatest prophet they had known. Moses is going to die, he says, but I will raise up for you another prophet like Moses. You must listen to him, Deuteronomy 18. And then you go through Deuteronomy 19.20, through to Deuteronomy 34, and the book closes with these words, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel." full stop, end of book. It it seems like a bit of a kind of negative way to end the book. It seems like a bit of an anticlimax until the penny drops. As you close the book of Deuteronomy, you think to yourself, keep looking. That's the point. Not yet, but keep looking. He's coming. A great prophet, an anointed one, has been promised. Someone who will communicate God to men and women in a special and direct and powerful way. So, wait for Him and watch for Him. Over the the course of time, prophets would come and go. Some would be faithful and some not. Some would be heard and some not. But none would be the prophet greater than Moses. And eventually, following His people's repeated rejection of His prophets, God would stop speaking to them. The Old Testament ends where it does because after Malachi, there is 400 years of silence. No prophets, no words from the Lord. So, prophecy was a precious gift of God, but it was always clear, and it wasn't the final answer 
to the question of how men and women can know God as they need to. The second group of people in the Old Testament who were anointed to their positions were the priests. Again, the priesthood was immensely important, another precious gift of God uh, to His people. Through the prophets, God had revealed Himself as a perfect and holy God who made men and women to reflect His perfection and holiness. He's always calling them to that through the prophets. The problem, of course, is that we're all far from that. And so, even though God communicates with His people through the prophets, there's, there's still a kind of great question mark hanging over the relationship between God and humanity. How is it possible for sinful and selfish people to enjoy fellowship and communion with a pure and holy God who cannot look on sin? Our sinfulness stands between us and God. It is not safe for us to approach God covered in sin. We'll be destroyed. Our culture it finds, our culture makes it hard for us to, to understand the gravity of this because it despises the very concept of sin, and therefore when it encounters what we call sin, it makes, it makes light of it. Sin's a bit of fun. No. The Bible tells us that sin separates each one of us from the God who sustains our lives. Sin erects a, a great barrier, cutting us off from the one who is responsible for everything good in the world. Our sinfulness destroys the joy and the glory of a true and intimate relationship with the living God who loves us. That's how serious sin is. How does God address it? He anoints priests. He gives to His people the gift of priests. He anoints men to stand between God and His people. They speak to the people on behalf of God, and they speak to God on behalf of the people. And central to the function of the priest was sacrifice. Sin must be punished and paid for. God cannot pretend that it doesn't matter. And yet, through His gracious gift of sacrifice, God finds a way to punish sin without destroying the sinners that He loves. And so, you have this amazing and ornate and utterly gory system that is put in place. Animals are brought. Hands are laid on animals. Sin is notionally transferred into the animal. The animal is slaughtered. Blood is poured everywhere and sprinkled everywhere and thrown everywhere. An extraordinary thing. But by this means, punishment for sin is taken away. Sin is removed. It's, it's, it's gone from me to the animal. It's no longer, no longer in me and on me and defiling me. It's, it's there. And there it's, it's dealt with in sacrifice. And we're reconciled to God. That's how, that's how good sacrifice is. That's how precious it is. The holy God can be approached, but only through sacrifice. And so priests are anointed to bring uh, the sacrifices. And yet again, there is something limited and there's something partial and incomplete about the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Many of the priests failed in their duties. They were, they went, went, they were serving themselves instead of God. And hear about that tonight from Micah. Many of the people would bring, they're supposed, you're supposed to bring the, the best animal you have or the best grain you have. People would bring People would bring their lame animals, stuff they don't want, 
God, you can have that. No good to me. And so the, the sacrificial system was, was spoiled and was marred and all was behind it all. There is the basic issue of the disparity between the sinner and the sacrifice. Can, can that transfer really work? Can the sins of men and women be dealt with by the death of sheep and goats and bulls? And the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says, good point, no. The blood of sheep and goats cannot take away the sins of men and women. The very fact that the priest has to, has to keep coming back day after, this went on, day after day, sacrifice after sacrifice, gallons upon gallons of blood continually. That in itself tells you it's not a final solution to the problem of sin. Something important is happening, but not a final answer. The last group of people anointed in the Old Testament were the kings. The people were given a leader, and the vision was that this leader would be a man after God's heart. He would lead the people in covenant with God. He would reflect in his kingship the character of God. The kingship, again, is to be a channel through which God blesses his people and is gracious to them. That's what kingship in Israel was for. And yet, if you know anything of the Old Testament, you know, you'll know that the reality of kingship was downright dismal at times. You remember these summary lists. It goes through the kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He multiplied wickedness. He was worse than all the kings before him. On and on it goes. The ideal of kingship is not fulfilled in the Old Testament. And in the end, the very institution of kingship, which God had said would go on forever and ever, appears to falter. As Israel is subjugated by foreign powers, the line of kings comes to an end, or so it seems. These are the anointed ones, prophets and priests and kings. In every case, precious gifts of God for the good and blessing of His people. But in every case, not a final answer, always pointing to something more and greater and better. And for a thousand years and more, there builds in Israel a sense of expectation of someone who will one day be to Israel and to the world everything that God has promised. And then you open the New Testament. You have Malachi, you have, you have a blank page which represents 400 years of silence. And then you turn to Matthew, book 1, chapter 1, verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one. It's even, it's even more succinct in Greek. Greek is, is kind of snappier than, than, than English. Um, you get four words into the New Testament before you found out that this is about the Christ. This is about the anointed one. And when he comes to begin his public ministry in Luke 4, you remember he's baptized by John in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then uh, the temptation in the wilderness... And then he comes and he reads, as we read earlier from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. And then, and then you have this, the way, that, the way that, that Luke describes it, it's a magnificently kind of um, charged moment. It's a, it's a kind of big screen cinema moment where Jesus reads this from Isaiah. 
And then he goes, what you didn't know, you stand to read, and then you sit to teach. He stands, he reads this, he goes, and he sits down, and it's as if Luke pauses. There's a kind of dramatic pause where Luke tells us, and the eyes of everyone in the whole place were fixed on him. And he said, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a supremely dramatic moment. It's a bombshell of a moment. The anointed one is here. You've seen the anointed ones for hundreds of years. Now the anointed one has come. He's not just anointed with oil. That was only ever a symbol. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit in fullest measure to perform the once-for-all definitive saving work of God. And so, here's what it comes down to. When we stand and when we say the creed, when we say, I believe in Jesus the Christ, we're saying that He is the perfect and full and final fulfillment of everything that God has promised. He is the prophet of all prophets. He is the priest of all priests. He is the king of all kings. And each one of these things has the deepest significance for your life and mine. It needs unpacked, so let's think about what it means. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the prophet greater than Moses who was promised. And the people longed for this. In John 1, when John the Baptist is going about his ministry, he's preaching. He's, he's preaching powerfully. He's making an impact. And what do the people say to him? Are you the prophet? They don't, they don't explain anymore. They don't say, remember that bit in Deuteronomy? They just say, are you the prophet? Everybody knows there's a prophet coming sometime. Are you him? By chapter 6, in John, the truth is becoming clearer. The people, amazed at Jesus' miracles, begin to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Prophecy is all about God communicating Himself to us. How can we know God? How can we know what He's like, what He has to say to us? More than that, how can we live in communion with Him, in a living relationship with Him? Well, in Jesus all of this happens in the fullest possible way. All of God comes to us. They knew that a prophet would come, but no one had ever dreamed that God would come as a prophet. He never entered into the wildest imaginations of His people, that God Himself would come. The Word became flesh, says John, and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is God's Word to us. The definitive message from God to His people. He doesn't bring the message. He is the message. In His person, in His work, He is everything that God has to say to us. He is the image of the invisible God. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells. All of God is here, come to us, tabernacling with us. And He Himself said, do you want to know God? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So the question is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus, the Christ, the fulfillment of all prophecy. 
Well, the proper response to a message from God is simply to believe it. That's the first part of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. You can't believe, you can't say you believe in Him if you don't believe Him. You don't believe His words. And so, whatever He says, believe it. Whatever He commands, do it. Whatever He promises, trust it. You can't say to Jesus, I believe in you, but I don't believe all that stuff you said about how you're the only way to God. You can't say to Jesus, I believe in you, but I don't believe all that stuff you said about hell. I believe in you, but, but really, to be honest, I just need some moral guidance, some occasional encouragement. I believe in you, but I don't believe what you said about marriage. Not anymore. To believe in Jesus as the anointed prophet of God means to believe everything that he says. And actually, there's a whole other layer to this too. Because here's what we need to understand. The Word of God is the Word of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, everything in your Bible, if you have a red-letter Bible, everything in your Bible should be in red letters. Everything, every last word of it. It is all the Word of Jesus to you. Jesus never said anything about X, Y, Z. You hear that all the time, don't you? And, and, and increasingly, I say, when somebody says, Jesus never said anything about such and such, I say, yes, He did. He said it in Leviticus or he said it in Isaiah, or he said it in Zechariah. Jesus is the author of these books. He said it in Revelation. He said it in Acts. He said it in Romans. The whole Word of God is the Word of the whole God. To believe in Jesus as God's prophet means to believe the whole Word of God. We need to hear His words if we're to say that we believe in Him. Priests, it's particularly in the book of Hebrews that we find the insistence that Jesus the Christ is the ultimate priest. Again, there have been intimations in the Old Testament that something greater and better was to come. There are prophecies about a coming servant who will suffer to save God's people. But again, what no one ever dreamed was that this ultimate priest would be God Himself in human flesh, and certainly never dreamed that the ultimate perfect sacrifice He would offer would be Himself, that He would be the servant who would suffer to die on behalf of His people. But this is what Jesus does, a perfect, sinless priest who comes. He comes to the altar, and instead of taking something else and laying it on the altar and killing it, He, he, he puts Himself on the altar, the perfect sacrifice. And because this sacrifice is perfect, it is fully and finally acceptable to God as an atonement for sin. That, that that river of blood that kept flowing and flowing and flowing just stops. There is no need for any further sacrifice. This is it. 
because the one who offers himself is flawless and doesn't need to atone for his own sin, it is fully and finally effective to make atonement for ours. Hebrews says, that, you know, the priests come along, they're going to offer sacrifices for your sin. They need to start by offering sacrifices for their sin. So they can't put themselves in the place of you, not fully, but Jesus can. And because this perfect one who so offers himself is one of us, the disparity between sinner and sacrifice is gone. Can my sins be taken by a goat? No, they can't. But can my sins be taken by this perfect man? Yes, they can. And so the pattern of sacrifice is broken in Jesus. And if you know um, the, the book of Hebrews, there's a little expression that's used throughout the book of Hebrews. And uh, in the Greek, it's a lovely little word. It's got four letters. A lovely little word, um, hapax, which means once for all. Once for all. And, and, and it's, it's repeated all the way through Hebrews. One sacrifice for all. One time for all times. One person for all people who trust in Him. Once for all. That's the heart of the Christian faith. That's the core of the gospel message. Forgiveness offered to all freely and without condition because of what Jesus did at the cross. His sacrifice removes forever, once and for all, the barrier that sin that puts up between us and God. It's shattered by His cross and our relationship to God restored. And so, what does it mean then to say that we believe in Jesus the Christ, the fulfillment of all priesthood and all sacrifice? It means that we accept this is the way to God. This is the only way to God. And it means, therefore, that we lay our full reliance on the cross of Christ for all our hope of forgiveness and salvation. Lay claim to this sacrifice God were to say to you, why should I have anything to do with a sinner like you? The answer starts, because what? Any answer that starts, because I is doomed to failure. Because I did my best. Because I'm not as bad as some people. Because I went to church. Because I was kind to people. Because I sponsored kids and filled shoeboxes. No. Only right response to that question is because Jesus, because Jesus lived for me, because Jesus died for me, because Jesus rose for me and lives for me, pleads for me, because Jesus gave himself a sacrifice for me. You cannot say to Jesus, this is what liberal theology does. You cannot say to Jesus, I believe in you, but I'll earn my own salvation. I'm not having all of this you dying for me. I don't like that. Don't need you to offer yourself up as a sacrifice for me. That is to reject Jesus. The rightful response to this ultimate priest is to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Taking that stand on Him is what it means to say, I believe in Jesus the Christ, the anointed priest.
And then the final category of anointed ones, the kings. Jesus is the perfect and final fulfillment of kingship. He is the ultimate king. Physically, he's descended from King David. The genealogies are there in the New Testament to tell us that, so that God's promise to David of an eternal kingdom does not fall but is fulfilled. But more than that, he is the perfect fulfillment of everything that kingship was intended to be. The king was intended to rule over his people and claim their loyalty, but also to bring blessing to his people through the goodness and righteousness of his reign. Think of how fully, how perfectly Jesus fulfills that role. Think of how uh, throughout the Gospels we hear about how the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come. Why? Because the king is here. That's why. His reign, his rule, his presence, the king has come. How do we show that we believe in Jesus, the ultimate king? Well, we'll look at this more next time. But the rightful response to a sovereign king is one of obedience and loyalty and service, and in the case of a divine king, worship. That's what it means to believe in him. And so you cannot say to Jesus, I believe in you, but I'm going to live my life my way. I believe in you, and that means you can have Sunday mornings, but everything else is mine. You can have my free time, but my work time belongs to someone else. You can have, you can have sovereignty over my time, but not my money. You can have this, but not that. To believe in Him means to submit to His rule in your life, in every part of it. Nothing withheld from him. Nothing. This affirmation goes to the absolute heart of the Christian faith for the simple reason that everything always comes back to the person of Jesus, the anointed prophet and priest and king. Cannot be stressed too often. Many people are happy to say yes to religion, yes to church, yes to morality, but Jesus... Do you ever find yourself in a church and, and you, should, you should pick this up. It should be an intuitive thing in you. If you ever find yourself in a church and you, you, end up the, you go through that whole service and you hear about God this and God that, God the other, you never hear about Jesus Christ, there's alarm bells. Alarm bells should be going off. What do we believe? We believe in Jesus Christ. This is core to our faith. There's one thing that could not be clearer from the whole of the New Testament. From the mouth of Jesus Himself, from the early church in Acts, from Paul and Hebrews and John and Peter, from everybody everywhere. If there's one thing that could not be clearer, it is this. You cannot say yes to God without saying yes to Jesus. You cannot say yes to God without saying yes to Jesus. You cannot believe in God, truly, unless you believe in Jesus, His anointed one. And so, He comes to us now and He says, believe in me. And He's not like Charlie Brown. He doesn't plead. He commands with all the authority of divine glory Believe in me as God's great prophet. 
the one who reveals who God is and how to relate to Him, the one whose words are truth. Believe in me as God's great high priest, the one who offers the full, perfect sacrifice for sins. Your priest, your sacrifice, dying in your place for your sin. Believe in me as God's great king, the one through whom all things were made, the one who continues to rule over every square inch of the universe. Utterly sovereign, utterly deserving of the loyalty and love and worship of every man, woman, and child. Believe in me as your king on the throne of your life, the one whom, before whom you place all your love and loyalty. You surrender all your priorities and plans and purposes and desires and dreams and fears and hopes. That's what you do before a king. You get down on your knees and you say, I am yours. I am your subject. I am your servant. Do with me as you will. I will live for you. I will fight for you. I will die for you. Because you are my king. That's what it means to say yes to God. That's what it means to say, I believe in Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, what a wonderful gospel you've given us. What a wonderful Christ you have sent to us. Help us to submit our minds to him in believing faith. Help us to submit our hearts to him in trusting faith. Help us to submit our wills to him in obedient faith. Help us to respond as we should to all that he is and all that he has done for us. And so help us to say with greater and greater conviction and with greater and greater joy, I believe in Jesus Christ. I am his and he is mine. We ask it in his great name and for his great glory. Amen.